and welcome to an extra spooky episode of The Goods, a film podcast. I'm with Brian here, and we are right in the middle of October. Spooky season. How you doing, Brian? We're in the thick of it, Dan. I made sure to get all my Halloween decorations up out in the yard a little earlier even than usual this year because somebody in the photojournalism class that I'm a TA for chose me as their subject for the environmental portrait assignment. So they got me in my element out there by the life-size horse skeleton and the 12-foot gargoyle demon. I would watch a documentary about you, Brian. Thanks, Dan. I'll drop the closest thing that I have in the Discord in association with this episode, which at the moment is the 20-minute Chipotle Mile documentary. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I might have watched that back in the day, but I would watch it again. I'm certain I've made you watch it. (laughs) So today's episode, we are talking about the 1963 classic haunted house story, The Haunting, directed by Robert Wise. It's a black and white American horror film. And it is part of a rather long and confusing, uh, I I called it the Hauntiverse. They're actually not all that related. Some of them are not. No, they're just intended to confuse, I think. Exactly, yeah. So it started in 1959, but two things happened. So the first is that a book called The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson was released. And that is actually the basis of today's film. Right. But you don't want to confuse it with a film from the same year, 1959, that the book came out, and this movie was called The House on Haunted Hill. Not The Haunting of Hill House, The House on Haunted Hill, directed by exploitation master William Castle and starring Vincent Price. That's right. So what we have is we have a 1959 book, Haunting of Hill House, a 1959 movie, totally unrelated except in its similar name, called The House on Haunted Hill. Then in 1963, The Haunting came out. And that's based on the book. All right. And then we have a little bit of a gap. And in 1999, again, the two media entities, media franchises with these confusing names could not shake each other because in the same year, in 1999, a remake of the 1963 Haunting came out called The Haunting. And also a remake of House on Haunted Hill. Crazy. So up until then, at least in the the filmed things, it was a little easier to tell apart because one was called The Haunting and one was called House on Haunted Hill. But then in 2018, Mike Flanagan, who has become a popular horror director and showrunner, he directed a Netflix miniseries 
that went back to the original title of the book, The Haunting of Hill House. So now we have House on Haunted Hill and Haunting of Hill House back in the discourse, as if it wasn't confusing enough. And you know it's good when each of these Wikipedia articles has like a multi-sentence not-to-be-confused-with clarifier at the top of the article. That's always my favorite. I love that. I also like people who in their bio box, it says preceded by position established, succeeded by position abolished. (laughs) So I had not seen any of these prior to this week, and I ended up watching the two hauntings. So the 1963, which is going to be our main focus today, and then the 1999 remake, which we'll talk about a little bit after we talk about the 1963 film. But what about you, Brian? How many of these have you experienced? Okay, so prior to this week, I had seen the Vincent Price House on Haunted Hill. And also recently, I checked out that miniseries on Netflix, The Haunting of Hill House from 2018, which changes a whole lot from the book. Like, it's barely connected, except that there's a big haunted house. It has the spiral staircase that shows up in the other two adaptations. And a lot of the same character names, even though they don't really act the same or fill the same roles. Why does everything need to be 10 hours now, Dan? Everybody's making 10-hour miniseries. I don't know. I would watch it if it was just a straight new film, but I don't want to sit through a 10-hour miniseries. That's one of the reasons I got back into film. It's like there's too much TV and it's all too long. I, I don't want any of that. Give me give me a 90 minutes in and out, you know? Even like individual TV episodes on streaming are too long. I almost yearn for the commercials keeping a heart out at 48 minutes. Right. I've been uh, watching the sitcom Superstore, which is a workplace sitcom at a Walmart type store. And it's not the best show ever made. It's it's really uneven in its writing, I think. But but I just find it very appealing in the way that sitcoms with good characters and good relationships are just very inviting. And like you said, you know exactly what you're getting time-wise. You know what you're getting format-wise. You're getting a self-contained 22-minute episode because this was a network TV show, not a streaming show. And I love that about it. It's 22 minutes. We watch one pretty much every single day. And then in and out, hey, we we enjoyed ourselves for 22 minutes. Don't need to worry about, oh, is this one going to be 39 minutes or is it going to be 27 minutes? And, oh, wait, is there going to be how many different interconnected movies and stories do we need to know to get the background on this? Like there is with the Marvels and the star Wars and stuff. No, it's just 22 minutes of pure bliss in and out 22 minutes adventure. So let's talk a little bit more about the genre in which these films, or at least specifically the haunting films take place. And I would say it's pretty squarely in what you could call Gothic horror, Gothic literature. Maybe time-wise, the book kind of was not during the peak of Gothic literature, but just in terms of its characteristics, for me, it's kind of right there. So what do you know about Gothic horror, Brian? Well, I think of Gothic as the early days of the literary horror genre. I think Frankenstein has been described as Gothic, and certainly Dracula. And often it takes place in these big, grand houses. Exactly. Gothic is as much about architecture as anything else. Right. Big, spooky manors and castles where the setting and the architecture 
do as much for the feeling of the the thing as the story itself. What's the Henry James one, Turn of the Screw? I think that might fall in this category too. You have some in this genre that are not explicitly horror. For example, Rebecca, the Hitchcock movie that was remade, I think, a couple years ago as well. And then is it Wuthering Heights? Is that one? I don't know. I get I get some of those some of those ones written by women mixed up. I'll put Poe in the conversation too. I think he fits here. Oh yeah, yeah. Floorboards and walls and things of that ilk. Right. Oh yeah. And spirits and people being overcome with maybe passion, but also like, I don't know, uh, fear, shaking walls. Yeah, all that stuff. And we're going to see a lot of that. Hysteria. Madness. Good word. Hysteria. Another thing that's a little refreshing about gothic literature is you you tend to have a pretty strong female representation in the characters and the authors and the subjects relative to a lot of fiction from the 19th century. Um, It's not 100% for sure, but um, like Dracula doesn't really have particularly memorable women characters. But, you know, Mary Shelley. Also, I would... We have kind of differing views on Dracula, as I've recently learned, but I would say it certainly has women prominent, even if they're not particularly developed characters. But I I think you might get different answers on that, at least as far as the novel is concerned. I would say Mina Mina is pretty prominent. I guess I was thinking more about the movies. I absolutely love Nosferatu, and I watched the 1931 Dracula just this past week for the first time. And I found it to be pretty meh. It just felt like the early talkies I've seen where there's a lot of standing still and having conversations in chamber rooms. And the fir- the opening half hour is pretty awesome because a lot of it takes place at Dracula's castle. And then it just kind of feels like characters talking to each other. Although I do absolutely love Bella Lugosi as Dracula. He's He's terrific. Wow, Bella, how do you do that? You must be double jointed and you must be... Hungarian. <laughs> Martin Landau and mm-hmm. Ed Wood. Best Supporting Actor winner. And then I watched The Voyage of the Demeter, which I thought was dumb fun. It's basically alien on a boat with a creature that they're not sure is there, hunting them down one by one and making people more and more paranoid and distrustful of each other. And I wrote a snarky review of it on the goods reviews where I used the phrase or some variation of the phrase Dracula kills people on a boat 18 times. So, yeah, I was curious about that one kind of wondering how do you turn a single scene that was already in another movie into a whole movie? Yeah, it's, it's based off of, I think it's chapter seven in Dracula. It's actually a pretty cool chapter. I read it after I watched the movie but it's written as a captain's log of like things getting creepier and creepier on the Demeter. This boat where Dracula has basically stowed himself as cargo. And yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty moody and it's just about these set pieces of, of Dracula stalking down people and killing them. So, it, I mean, it's there's not really too much to it in terms of story. It's it's all about the atmosphere and the the chasings and and all that and pretty visceral deaths like it does maybe the best version of the neck getting bitten by dracula that i've seen where he actually like 
rips a chunk of flesh out of the neck and sucks the blood out of it rather than just like the 1931 Dracula where they have these two little pinpricks on the the neck. Mm -hmm. And and Dracula is more of a it's kind of like Nosferatu where he looks kind of like a, a rat. He's got like this weird gaunt face, but he's also even more monster like and rodent like. And he's got these big bat wings and stuff. Yeah, he looked monstery on the poster. Yeah. I think this scene was done well in the old Nosferatu. Yeah. And certainly it was downplayed in the Universal 1931 one. I haven't seen Bram Stoker's Dracula, the early 90s one, but I got to knock that out at some point. Yeah, and then the early talkie, the 1931 one that kicked off the Universal horror, also had a Spanish version filmed at the same time. And I haven't seen that, but I would definitely watch that one as well. And if you look it up, it's not Dracula 1931. It's Dracula 1931 with a little accent over the U or something like that. <laughs> and that made me laugh. That's the distinguishing thing between the two of them, if you're looking them up. Nice. The conventional wisdom holds that the Spanish version is better. I guess they got more adventurous with the camera. The English version is kind of staid and static because they're in those early days, those Margot Robbie Babylon days of the transition. Hello, college. It's like the horror version of Singing in the Rain. Anyways, we got a little off topic there, but only a little bit because it is in gothic horror. So this is also maybe obviously, maybe not given the title with the house on Haunted Hill, the, the haunting of Hill House, whatever, there's a house involved. So this is indeed a haunted house story. So Brian, let's talk a little bit about haunted house stories that we've encountered, other memorable haunted house films we might have seen. Okay. Well, I mentioned last episode that I liked the description of the house in The Halloween Tree. Carved out of black marble, its roof a great cemetery of chimneys marking the burial place of some old forgotten god of fire. What about you, Dan? Some some highlights of the haunted house subgenre. Well, the first one I think of is the Japanese film House, which we talked about in our early days of the podcast and is one where we crossed over with Buzzed On Movies, which I know is a starstruck moment for you, Brian. Yeah, I actually forgot that they joined for that. It, we did, what did you call it? A home and away. So there were actually two episodes, one on their feed, one on ours, where we crossed over. Man, somehow I'd forgotten that. Yeah, that's right. That was uh, that was fun. We should do something else with them sometime. I saw they did their first episode in quite a while, just a, a month or two ago. I'm hoping we get some Saw 10 coverage from them here soon. That's right. That's one of their things. The, the Saws is... Um, another one that was on my mind because there was a recent film is Haunted Mansion, which I think was a movie in the 90s. Maybe Eddie Murphy starred in it. I might have seen it. It was like 2005 or 2006. It was after Pirates, after the first Pirates in 2003. OK, so it was like the wave of, oh, we have a new conveyor belt of things we can turn into movies this time it's theme park attractions right rides movies people forget that there was a country bears movie before pirates that kicked it off wow i did forget that with christopher walken in a prominent role this is not over bears <laughs> that actually sounds pretty funny maybe we should pick that for the pod sometime 
Another one, just from the recent past of movies I've seen, Skinamarink. We talked about that, I think, last week. I take it you weren't too into it. I thought it had really, really good atmosphere. It was just way too long. I need to go back to it because I got about a half hour in and just n- nothing had happened. That is an overstatement, I guess. Things had happened, but I couldn't see them. The whole point of the presentation is that we're like looking at corners, which isn't where the things are going on. Right. You kind of have to use your imagination to know what's going on. And you just see like flickers of it and shadows of it and the edge of it and stuff. And yeah, very, very divisive movie. But another brief tangent here. I've been listening to this other podcast. And one thing they've been talking about is like a representative of what's going on in horror cinema in the 2020s is they call it the shutter effect. So shutter is a streaming service that's focused on horror. And it is pretty much the only successful niche streaming service. Like most streaming services are all about, Oh, we have classic content and new content and stuff across all genres, et cetera, TV and film. But this one is just about horror and it's got a lot of horror diehards. Horror tends to be a genre that gets like really devoted fans, people who are really into it. And because it's, you know, so niche, there's more experimentation within the niche. And so like more unusual and independent features get picked up by them. And so it's like one of the few genres where there's a lot of attention on more groundbreaking films. So Skinamarink is one that they released that has been very divisive. But in general, people are hailing that people taking swings out there in horror. So That's cool, though. I appreciate that they're supporting new producers, new directors. Right. The last one I thought of is a movie from either early this year or last year. I can't quite remember. It's called We Have a Ghost. And you'll recall we talked about Happy Death Day, which I really, really liked. And I think you liked too, if I recall, Brian. And then I ended up catching up with the rest of the movies made by Christopher Landon, who is the director of Happy Death Day. And uh, I found them to mostly be pretty good. They also had one called Freaky, which was initially going to be called Freaky Friday the 13th. And the premise of that one is it's a slasher, except it's a body swap movie, too. So the slasher and the final girl swap bodies. So now it's like this young woman in high school. I think she might be a senior in high school or something going around campus, stabbing bullies and stuff. And meanwhile, Vince Vaughn, the big lanky dude plays an 18 year old girl in his body. And he's like essentially the final girl. And it's very funny. They both give good performances of like being inhabited by the opposite personality. So I enjoyed that one. A lot of slasher enthusiasts did not like it because it broke some cardinal rules of slashers. Namely, it projects at the very beginning who's going to die and who's going to live. And it doesn't give you any mean surprises on that. Basically, the good guys live and the bad guys die. But I still found it to be very amusing and fun to watch. But anyways, the movie he made after that was We Have a Ghost, which is like a haunted house story, but as like a goofy family comedy almost with like some social media satire and stuff in it. And I thought it was really wonky and not especially good. But that's another interesting one from from last year. Uh, Maybe worth watching, but not very good for me overall. Another one I would say that falls into this genre that we have covered on the podcast is Ghost Watch. 
Oh, yes, yes. The simulated news broadcast from the UK about investigating a poltergeist infestation at a suburban home. And they, you know, like early found footage. That was kind of cool. Yeah, I like that one. That was fun. Good pick on that one. But one of my favorite haunted house movies is called The Ghost and Mr. Chicken with Don Knotts. Have you ever seen that one, Dan? The Ghost and Mr. Chicken? Yeah. No, I've never seen that. Oh, man. Next year. There's only so many weeks in October. So The Ghost and Mr. Chicken is from 1966. And it's about this news reporter played by Don Knotts, Barney Fife on the Andy Griffith show, who goes to investigate... And it's kind of Scooby-Doo stuff. Like, he gets haunted. Paranormal stuff happens. But then it turns out that, like, a guy is is doing it all. Perpetrating it in behind-the-scenes manipulations like Scooby-Doo. But then, is it really? You know, is it a person or is it a ghost? Right, a little wink at the end. I can imagine that. And you look up this movie on Letterboxd. I just did as you were talking. And it's got this terrific header image that's presumably a screenshot from the film of a creepy old pipe organ covered in cobwebs and Don Knotts doing his exasperated Don Knotts face at the organ. So yeah, I think I could watch this. That captures the spirit pretty well. <laughs> like it's, it's genuinely creepy at parts when he's investigating the house and the stuff starts happening. Oh, I see that Teddy from Buzz on Movies has rated that movie. Did they talk about that one on <laughs> Buzz on Movies, Brian? Not yet, but that doesn't surprise me in the slightest. I bonded with Teddy in high school because of how simpatico our movie tastes were. And it would always be like I'd bring up some movies like, of course you've seen that movie. The, <laughs> the key example was The Gnome Mobile. I'm going to go out on a limb and say you've not seen The Gnome Mobile, Dan. You would be correct. Okay, so that's one from the 60s from Disney, but it's about gnomes living in the Redwood Forest. And we were playing a piece in band class. And the description of how you were supposed to play the music that was at the top of the piece said jauntily. <laughs> and somebody said, they raised their hand and they said, what does jauntily mean? And Teddy said, in the manner of a jaunting car. And I said, is that from the Gnome Mobile? <laughs> and we bonded. It was like a lightning bolt between our brains. Very nice. Well, I'm glad. That I, now I want kind of want to know what a jaunting car is, but maybe we can save that one for another episode, too. It sounds like <laughs> we got, a, we got a, a rich backlog. Maybe we should start inviting Teddy to join us here. Yeah, that'll have to be a Buzzed on Movies crossover. Yeah. We can do a, a double feature of the ghost and Mr. Chicken and the gnome mobile or whatever it was. Exactly. What's it called? Gnome That's mobile? right. The gnome mobile. I'm ready to start talking about the haunting. Brian, we'll, we'll talk about the 1963 one, and then we can maybe do some some brief thoughts on the 1999 remake, which you also caught up with, correct? That's right. I felt like I had to watch both just to be prepared. <laughs> I thought when it came to it, your instincts would take over and you would watch it. So, Yeah, I have been binging the Friday the 13th movies, as well as obviously some Dracula stuff. And I went down a little bit of a rabbit hole on that one. But I did manage to watch both of the hauntings. If I were in peak form right now, I think I might have caught up with the entire haunt verse. But uh, I just watched those two. Nice. I haven't seen much of friday the 13th i think the only one i've seen is number nine 
Jason Goes to Hell. Okay. I, I've seen now through six. And that it brings me only halfway through the franchise. It's a 12-parter. I thought Halloween was much longer than it, but it turns out it's only one movie longer than it. It, it only surpassed it last year, so. Yeah, it's been a long time since we got a Friday the 13th. All right, so The Haunting, 1963. It takes place at Hill House, which is this this huge gothic manor. Just a, a real triumph of set design. And I want to talk a little bit about the set design as we kind of go through the film. Really terrific design for this manor. Um, and just all the rooms, so many statues and like almost expressionistic in the way that there's shadows, chiaroscuro, I think you call those kind of sharp angles and shadows and just a really interesting place where there's always something cool to look at. There's spiral staircases and like big open foyers and, and all sorts of stuff. What do you think of this, this manner, Brian, this set? It's really impressive. And both this and the remake, I think, shot extensively in like actual estates, the kind of rich person houses that ultimately like are so palatial that one person can't own them and they end up like in the possession of the state, like Citizen Kane, like Xanadu type stuff. The Biltmore comes to mind. I don't think either of these was shot at the Biltmore, but it's that kind of place. And yes, even above and beyond the the house in being that was already there in this 1963 film, like every shot is thoughtfully composed. The way that the people are placed in their surroundings is always cool. And the black and white cinematography is just beautiful. Really terrific cinematography, camera work. I'm 100% with you. I think it's awesome. So I, I wanted to quote the opening monologue of this film, because it opens with someone who we will learn to be Dr. Markham. No, Dr. Markway. I'm probably going to make that mistake. It, they did the thing between the original and the remake where the names are similar, but slightly off. And so they never like quite clicked in my brain. And so I'm going to get a bunch of the names wrong. I'm certain as we go, like Eleanor, the main character in one of them, she's Eleanor Lance. And in one of them, she's Eleanor Vance. And the doctor goes from Dr. Markway to Dr. Morrow. And it's like, why are you doing this to me? Anyways, here, here's the, the opening narration where we learn about the Hill House. An evil old house, the kind some people call haunted, is like an undiscovered country waiting to be explored. Hill House had stood for 90 years and might stand for 90 more. Silence lay steadily against the wood and stone of Hill House, and whatever walked there, walked alone. And then we have the title card. And then his voice comes back in. Scandal, murder, insanity, suicide. The history of Hill House was ideal. It had everything I wanted. It was built 90-odd, very odd years ago by a man named Hugh Crane as a home for his wife and daughter in the most remote part of New England he could find. It was an evil house from the beginning. A house... That was born bad. Just great stuff. Giving me the tingles as we're watching here. Yeah, a couple thoughts on this opener. So I want to look up the etymology of the phrase, the undiscovered country. Like, where did that come from? Because there's a 
Star Trek. I think it is Star Trek six. If that's the wrong number, correct me. But one of them's called the Undiscovered Country. And then it also gets used a bunch of times in Halloween Tree. Mount Shroud says, follow me into the Undiscovered Country. It's like a a euphemism for death in some ways, you know? Yeah, or just the unknown in general. Yeah. Nice. I wonder if it's in Over the Garden Wall. I can't place it being there at all, but it's the kind of thing that would show up there. But also in this opening narration, we get it from the perspective of the doctor, the like paranormal investigator, whereas the whole rest of the movie is narrated by Eleanor. So I found that kind of unusual. It is kind of interesting, and it ends up making a little bit more sense to me by the time we get to the end. I like it just because it makes you curious. Like, what does he mean exactly what I was looking for? And it's because he's this scientist, this researcher basically trying to pierce the veil of the supernatural and and actually find reputable evidence of it. And another reason I like it is because it sets up the themes of basically the struggle between rational scientific observation as opposed to like spooky supernatural encounters that is, I would say, among the main thematic threads throughout this film. And it kind of sets it up there from the beginning, getting it from the eyes of this this scientist. But yeah. The next thing that happens in the film is we see a montage of people who have died suspiciously at the house, notably all women and who all had like really suspicious deaths. And in some cases seem like they were consumed by the house or driven mad by the house. And this is where you already get some of that kind of gothic undertones here. And some of these shots of the women dying are real interesting and compelling and freaky. Like there's a big spiral staircase and we see a woman hang herself there. And we like see this almost obfuscated angle, her walking up the spiral staircase. And then as like a jump scare, her body falls down and dangling. Um, and, and lots of other just really inventive and creepy shots like that throughout this opening bit. Yeah, as the movie goes along, I don't know if we get it op- here in the opener, but there's a lot of innovative camera movement, like very frantic, fast camera movement in this film. And it almost felt like Sam Raimi or something, like Evil Dead. I wasn't expecting it this early. Yeah, and I, I think this was probably made, I mean, it came out in 1963. So Robert Wise had seen Psycho, I assume, because there's definitely some Psycho here, too of like almost POV type fisheye lens, like you're looking somewhere and chasing someone down. And I don't know, um, really well done, I thought. Yeah, lots of fisheye. Like anytime there's a wide shot of the halls or the rooms, the edges are like bending in on themselves. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we, we see, we, we meet Dr. Markway, uh, one of the main characters here, and... He is, like we said, doing a research experiment and his plan. And I think this is actually a pretty interesting setup for a story. So his plan is he wants to get the most uh, supernaturally sensitive people he can find into the most haunted place he can find. And so the most haunted place he can find is this old house. And we're going to meet some of the people who he believes are supernaturally inclined. And he's going to basically do 
robust observation there to basically see if he can actually document real hauntings. And I was kind of hooked by this this opener because I was like, oh, this really like it's almost I've been using this word maybe too much. It's almost postmodern in that it's like not hauntings directly by some uninterested interloper, but by someone who's actually commenting upon the very nature of haunting and trying to understand it better. And I thought that was pretty interesting and, and kind of nuanced and sophisticated. I was I was definitely intrigued here. The people that Dr. Markway ends up pulling together for this experiment are Eleanor Vance. So she, as you said, is the one who we see most of the movie from. And the things we learn about her is that she's basically spent her whole adult life as this kind of repressed caretaker of her mother, who I think was like an invalid or something like that. Basically, it took up all of Eleanor's time and life energy to take care of her mom. And her mom recently passed away, but Eleanor blames herself for the death because one night the mom called out and Eleanor was like, no, tonight I'm not going to do it. And that happened to be the night that the mom died. And so Eleanor's kind of like on the edge emotionally already because her mother just died and she's feeling guilt about that. And the reason that she's supernaturally inclined is because apparently she had a poltergeist experience as a kid. And this is kind of mentioned and it seems kind of important. Like it's this thing that she sort of never fully processed, but I felt like it didn't get quite enough explanation or emphasis for me to really understand the point of it. Was, was there something that was missing there or did you process this one, Brian? I would guess there's probably more about it in the book, but what I got out of it, and we talked about this in the Ghostwatch episode, is that poltergeists, like kind of part of their lore, the, the standard poltergeist is going to latch on to an adolescent girl. And like, on the one hand, it's a manifestation of the angst and everything that an adolescent goes through. On the other hand, it's like, are they just faking it to get attention? Like, is it a whole Salem witch trial mass hysteria thing? Like, is it a social contagion? Like, they'll pay attention to me if I act like I'm possessed by a witch. And that passes from from young woman to young woman and, and, and consumes the town. Like, is it TikTok Tourette's spreading through the social sphere? What's TikTok Tourette's? I haven't heard of that. There's been articles lately that like there's a Tourette's community on TikTok and it's causing it to spread unnaturally because it's a it's a social contagion. Huh. I'm not a doctor. Yeah, that uh, don't take your medical advice from the goods of film podcast. That seems at a minimum worthy of further investigation because that sounds a little dubious to me. But again, I'm not a doctor. So um, I, I think what you just said, though, I think is is very relevant and potent because there's this really strong undercurrent to Eleanor where she's been essentially sexually repressed because she's had to care for her mom her whole life and doesn't really have a partner. And I think that is like a driving factor in a lot of the quote unquote hysteria that she goes through when we, she eventually encounters these hauntings. Absolutely. 
the movie I kept thinking of was Summertime that we talked about, the 1955 film, which was all about like a woman entering middle age who was very sexually repressed. Oh, yeah. And she's like looking to latch on to something, looking to have experiences for the first time. Some of the other people in this group are Theodora. So she's supposedly a psychic. She can tell you exactly what cards you're holding up due to ESP. And also relevant, she is very much a lesbian in a way that you can't actually say that she's a lesbian. She's a nudge nudge lesbian and coded and even more than coded, like basically explicitly stated as such. I was surprised how explicit, just very openly flirtatious with Eleanor. And so it had me wondering why write the character this way. And I was thinking a little bit about it and it had me thinking of Alfred Hitchcock. So Alfred Hitchcock was known for a device that I'm sure many other filmmakers used, but Hitchcock was known for it of basically having a side character, typically a villain be queer coded kind of as um, a representation of some sort of connection to forbidden desires or forbidden knowledge in some way. And so I think it actually makes for a good character in the story to kind of bring out what you were talking about, about like the first time sexual experiences. And like, that's kind of part of what's driving Eleanor and also Theodora. She's just fun to have around. I think she's a, a pretty charming character, but any other thoughts on Theodora? Well, We'll hit on them as the story goes, but probably also when we bring up the remake. But I liked in this 1963 one, when at one point Eleanor says, So Theo, are you married? And Theo's like, nope. <laughs> Just, yeah, like, yeah, no, no, I'm not married. She's she very clearly, she's a lesbian and they just can't say that word for word. Yeah. And there's one exchange where... Eleanor is like, you're gross. People like you are disgusting to me because she kind of goes hot and cold on Theodora as the movie goes. And I was like, how could that be anything other than talking about her being a lesbian? And apparently it's also like because she's a psychic is the other possible reading of it where it's not that explicit. I was like, eh, that's I think it's pretty obvious. Yeah. I mean, that's the reason that she's at the house that she's been invited to come is Theo is a psychic, which I really liked how she was written, because this is another thing where you could maybe argue that nothing supernatural is happening. But just having a character who's a mind reader, it had a lot of like funny and sharp exchanges. You know, she when she meets Eleanor, she calls her Nell. And Eleanor's like, how do you know that people call me Nell? And she says, it's a common nickname for Eleanor. Yeah, and she kind of straddles the line between just very empathetic and observant. And also, maybe she is actually psychic, you know? Absolutely. It's all kinds of things that, like, a carnival fortune teller might be able to come up with, but... She's always on the ball. She's always one step ahead. I liked Theo. Yeah. Then the last person there is this guy named Luke. And so he's the heir to the house. And there's a there's a little exchange at the beginning where the, the current owner of the house is like, oh, you need my heir to be there to observe your study in, in order for her to agree for the 
doctor to do his his observation. And again, I, I feel like a good contribution to the group because his thing is he's just like very cynically skeptical of anything supernatural. So you kind of have all these different slight variations on their view of ghosts and such. You have the guy who's just very flippant about it. You have the one who's like very rational, but also open to it. And then you have Eleanor who's very susceptible to it and feels like she's very connected to everything that's going on there. So yeah, I thought it was a good ensemble. And we, we learned that basically there's this whole like list of names of people who were invited, but the rest of them declined when they heard about the dark history of the Hill House. So it's, it's just these four people there. I was curious to know more about who got invited and decided, nah, I'm not going to do that. (laughs) The movie budget specified that they would not be able to uh, appear. (laughs) Sir, not appearing in this film. (laughs) So when they arrive, they, they get let in by this groundskeeper who is the classic like, oh, you got to be careful in there. Dark things are happening in there. And more or less gets locked in. In the remake, it's explicitly locked in. But in this one, it's more like, well, we won't be there to tend to you at all. So it'll just be you in the dark and the cold all by yourself. And sort of egging on this conception that the the house is haunted, almost winkingly. But yeah. No one will come at night in the dark. But before long, like basically as soon as they arrive, ghosty stuff starts happening. Spookiness. So let's talk about some of the things we see when ghosts are present, Brian. So one is cold areas, like their breath gets foggy just a little bit, much more noticeably in the remake. But I I think you see some of the the breath in this, too. Um, Another one is shaking of doors and rattling walls. There is they can turn doorknobs too. like you're waiting there and all of a sudden the doorknob will slowly start turning. So far, I just want to point out all these things. You don't need a lot of special effects to show. This movie's got a lot of restraint in terms of special effects. Like, I feel like one of the things that makes it work so well is that it does more with less and not in like the Skinamarink Blair Witch way of not showing anything, but of just leaving so much to suggestion and like clever use of camera and such. Yeah, I like the way that it gradually built how intense the phenomena were. Mm-hmm. And it's very much in the poltergeist vein where these are ghosts that bang things around and make noise, but they don't really manifest. They don't have a physical form themselves. The most extreme we get, and I'm sure you'll get to it, but eventually we get like a latex door, like a door starts morphing and bending in a way that I wasn't ready for. It's like, ah, that's weird. And I, I will get to that too, but I really like that effect because we hadn't really had anything that I would call special effects other just other than just clever camera movements and, and set designs and stuff. But then all of a sudden the door starts bulging out. And I was like, oh my God, what's happening here? My favorite, though, was Eleanor's lying in bed and the camera gets in really close in a face in the wallpaper. Or like the the wall decorations, it 
zooms in on like two things that could be eyes on this face and then you just hear like weird ghostly whispers for a long time and i thought that did a really good job of capturing the feeling of what do they call it pareidolia what's pareidolia it's the human instinct to pull faces out of unpatterned images oh yeah okay they actually talk about that in Ghostwatch too. Oh yes, pareidolia, faces in the fire. Oh, I remember now. Yeah, yeah. Um, another one that I really liked that I thought was really effective is later in the movie when Eleanor is like on the brink of breaking down from all of the spookiness that's happening. She wakes up to some ghostly presence, like a, a banging door or something like that, and. She reaches her hand out and and Theodora grabs her hand, or at least like as Eleanor is narrating it, she's like, oh, and Theodora grabbed my hand. And she like talks to Theodora and stuff, but we don't hear Theodora's voice. And then it zooms out and she's just holding her hand in open air. So it's like no one was ever actually holding her hand, but she still had the sensation of her hand being held. Then who was phone? (laughs) It sounds really dumb when you just say it that way, but... It it works in the context of the film, I thought. I thought it was a little overwrought. It worked certainly better in the 60s film than in the remake, but also they like didn't make as big a deal of it in the remake. I feel like that was probably something that was really built up in the book. But then whose hand was I holding? And yeah, it worked pretty well in the 60s film for me. I- I'm glad you brought up the book and like the perspective of Eleanor because... Another interesting thing is that Eleanor is like on the verge of mental breakdown. And that's the kind of thing you can do very well and directly even in a text in the written word. But you can't really do in film. I mean, film, you're bound to what a camera captures. You know, you're not in the perspective of a person in the same way. But I felt like this movie actually did a pretty good job of putting us in her head a combination of narration and like zoom ins on her face and then cut to something else. So we kind of see what she's thinking and almost like impressionistically get a sense of where her mind is. Um, at least in the sixties one, I thought that that worked pretty well, but yeah, the way that the plot goes is it's just, it's one spook after another. And all the while Eleanor is more and more, communing with the house or like locked in on the wavelength of the house and like feeding off of things that are happening. And another thing that kind of keeps happening and, and and keeps being relevant is that she finds herself drawn to Dr. Markway. Like she's falling for him and he's not really rebuffing her at all, but we know that he's married. Like, I think we learned that pretty early on. I kept thinking, isn't he married? Right. At the very beginning of the movie, we knew that. So that's the shoe waiting to drop. And sure enough, like maybe two thirds into the movie, the wife appears. I don't remember exactly why she came to the house. It didn't really make too much sense. It worked thematically because it was like basically the thing that kicked off uh, the final spiral for Eleanor, who again, you know, had been drawing closer to Dr. Markway, but now his wife is there. Which is the same thing that happens in Summertime, that the big reveal is actually the dude she's been following around Venice is married. 
Oh, good connection. And he's like, oh, do you have a problem with that? I mean, we can still hang out and and mess around. And she's like, but I've been waiting for my whole life to be validated. And he's like, well, sorry. <laughs> yeah, good connection. I don't think I would have thought of that one. And meanwhile, of course, Theodora is sort of coming on to Eleanor, basically just doing different variations of, oh, yeah, I'm a lesbian. Hey, what are you up to? Which it's not exactly a come on, but it's like an opening for a come on, basically. Well, it's like there's ghosts out there, so you better come climb into my bed. She like rolls her eyes whenever... Eleanor speaks of Dr. Markway or spends time with Dr. Markway. And again, you can read it as like, well, she knows that he's probably married or whatever, or that she's a lesbian who thinks it's silly that a woman would chase after some man like that. Something we haven't said yet is that Eleanor doesn't really have a house. We said she doesn't really have a life outside of the start of the film because she's been caring for her mother but she also doesn't have a home of her own like i guess she was living in the mom's house which the older siblings or something have the power of a state so they want to sell the mom's house and at the start they say something like well you could sleep on our couch eleanor but she's really looking for her place in the world because she doesn't have a job doesn't have a house doesn't have any experience so she's really, really rootless. And that plays into why she latches onto this house, because this is like a place where she's wanted and people who have a need for her. And all of that is important to the story. Right. Well said. And she also speaks about how this experiment is like a big adventure for her. So it's like she feels excited about something for the first time. But when... Dr. Markway's wife comes. She decides she's going to stay in the nursery. And this is important because the nursery has been identified as like the psychic core of the house, the most haunted place in the house to the point that they couldn't even get the door open. But then when Dr. Markway's wife comes, the door is swung open. And again, Dr. Markway's wife is very flippant, kind of like Luke, about the possibility of there being ghosts there. And she just casually walks in and tosses her luggage and like, oh, yeah, I'll sleep here. And Eleanor's like horrified, like you can't go in the most haunted room in the house. Well, at first, Eleanor, because she's salty, she's like, oh, well, she can stay in the nursery. And the wife says, yeah, OK, I'll go in the nursery. And then Eleanor has regrets. She's like, no, wait, don't. Right. And that night the group has kind of convened to a single room. As this is going on, Dr. Markway is kind of noticing that Eleanor is getting more and more kind of unhinged from reality and is thinking of canceling the experiment because it might not be healthy for Eleanor to be in such a susceptible state, I guess. And so they decide one night they're all going to sleep downstairs in a room together. And that's when they get the biggest ghostly encounter of all, lots of shaking and stuff. And that's also when the, the door latex effect happens that we talked about. Again, it's kind of simultaneously because Eleanor is shaken up because she had, you know, started envisioning herself with Dr. Markway, but now the wife is here. But also 
Dr. Markway's wife is like stirring up the spirits by staying in the nursery. And so then they go and they decide to check on Dr. Markway's wife, but she's completely disappeared. She's not in the nursery and they can't find her. And so now we've kind of hit the climax here. Eleanor finds herself drawn to that spiral staircase that we had seen at the beginning where someone hanged themselves and has been an image throughout the film. A really memorable staircase that kind of, I guess it goes to an attic. It doesn't really seem to go anywhere except, I guess, to like the balcony over this big room. And she kind of goes up there and the whole time this spiral staircase is really rickety. And Dr. Markway has to go save her. But at the last minute, this head pops out and we see that it's Dr. Markway's wife, but it kind of, oh, is it a ghostly head or is it a real head? And it it scares Eleanor. And now Eleanor is like fully off the deep end at this point. Dr. Markway decides to call off the experiment and sends Luke. Okay, you got to go take Eleanor home. But Eleanor basically steals the car. I guess she was going to drive anyways, and Luke was just going to be the navigator or something like that. But Eleanor just speeds off before Luke can get in the car and driving down the, the wooded entryway of this manor. And she sees a figure pop out and she swerves off to the side and crashes into a tree and dies. So the, the movie ends with Eleanor dying. And it turns out the woman she saw was, again, just Dr. Markway's wife, who had become totally disoriented and scared and I guess wandered outside or something. But she declares that this is what Eleanor wanted, that she can reside in the house forever, now be the new ghost who's haunting the house. So Eleanor did finally find her place to be rooted down, and that is this house as a ghost. Right. So it's all in this original film, a lot of plausible deniability. Except maybe the stretchy door. Like, there was definitely weird stuff going on, but how much of it was really real deal for real? As opposed to things happening in Eleanor's head, exactly. Although Luke seems fully swayed by the end. He's the guy who was, like, really cynical about it, the heir to the house, and he declares that the house must be burned down. And I think he says, like, the the earth salted and stuff. (laughs) What does salting the earth do? Does that just prevent crops from growing? Yes. Supposedly. That's the idea, yeah. Gotcha. But I like the way the movie ends. So it ends with narration, just like the beginning, except now it's in Eleanor's voice. So presumably the ghostly spirit inside the house. And here's what she says. Hill House has stood for 90 years and might stand for 90 more. Within, walls continue upright, bricks meet, floors are firm, doors are sensibly shut. Silence lies steadily against the wood and stone of Hill House. And we who walk here walk alone. Which is a line that had been in the opening monologue. I got chills again when it kind of ended echoing the the opening monologue. And that's how the haunting ends, Brian. So what, what are some things I, I didn't cover as we were talking through this that you wanted to shout out? I think that gets it. It's a vibes heavy movie. Yeah, absolutely. With kind of a really long middle act where ghostly thing, ghostly thing, ghostly thing. It didn't feel too repetitive to me, though. It did feel like it escalated. And it's it's only I guess it's an hour 50, so it's not that short, but it didn't really feel that long to me. But I don't know. Yeah, it wasn't too bad. She says we walk alone at the end. I want to know how many ghosts there are and how many ghosts can you still say they're alone? 
Like, as as they build up, eventually you're not alone anymore because you have many ghosts, a, a plurality of ghosts. We're all alone relative to some other group of people, though, Brian. Like, we on planet Earth are alone relative to the rest of the universe. Good point. It's all perspective. I don't know, though. The remake, which we'll talk about here in just a second now, is more concerned with, like, who are the actual ghosts who are there? Because that's not really too heavily probed by the haunting, the 1960s one, but it is in the in the remake. So any other thoughts on the 60s one? And then we'll talk about the, the 90s one here for a few minutes, Brian. We said evocative too much last week. I think this is also a pretty evocative film. Yeah, well said. I think so, too. And I felt for Eleanor. So one thing is when she's driving to the house, she passes. I don't even think it's at Hill House, just some other house. And she sees that they've got lions like library stone lions out front. And she says, my life begins today and someday I'll have a house with lions outside. And then when she's like telling her story to Theo, she lies about where she's at in life. And she says, well, I have an apartment with stone lions on my mantle. Like a house would be too big of a lie, but even just a little apartment is a lie because she doesn't even have that. And it's like, oof, I kind of relate to this. I feel like sometimes when I tell my life story, I say things like this. And then the resolution is actually the guy is married. And if you want to have a place in the world, you got to die. It's like, oh, man, that's that's a bummer. Sad ending. And I think another example of Theodora, either she's psychic or she's just very good at reading people. Yeah, when she hears the story, she knows that it's a crock. Right. Whether or not she's reading her mind. Stone lions, huh? Lots of good uh, decorations like that at this house. Although I think to your point, that's not where she sees the first lions, but lots of decorations. Or I don't know, you don't call them really decorations, I guess, if they're like built into the house. Maybe ornamentations or something. My six-year-old is really into gargoyles. She thinks they're really fascinating. Like the monsters carved on buildings. And so she that that's something that we learn about in Halloween Tree. So she was really latching onto that too. At some point down the way, she should check out the Disney Gargoyles show. Yeah. I heard they're making a live action version of that. Of course they are. Anything they own, they got to milk it. Yeah, with even like a hint of nostalgia to it. So let's talk The Haunting from 1999. This film was directed by Jan Debon. It's spelled as Jan Debont. This guy's kind of interesting. I read a little bit about him in the past couple days after I watched The 99 Haunting. So... He was a pretty well-regarded cinematographer. He was the cinematographer for Die Hard, for example, and did some terrific work there and did some other mostly blockbuster type movies. And then he got a chance to be a director. And his first movie was Speed. Have you seen Speed, Brian? Whoa, I actually have not watched Speed. I know the premise, though. It's the bus that couldn't slow down. Exactly, yeah. And then he he made Speed 2, he made Twister, he made this, the 1999 Haunting, and then he made Tomb Raider 2, starring Angelina Jolie. And apparently 
the experience of making Tomb Raider 2 was so miserable that he announced, I'm quitting Hollywood. And he just left Hollywood in 2003 and he never came back. He just fully, full on retired. He didn't stop being a cinematographer, stop being a director. But apparently they were like cutting budgets by the millions by the day. And like there was three layers of approval. It was like the studio and the game company and the executive producers all had to sign off on any changes he wanted to make. And it was like just this arduous, horrible experience. Wow. I kind of admire that he just straight up retired and like didn't ever come, did, was never lured back. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you got to decide what's best for your life. I was wondering, Dan, were you familiar at all with this movie before you tossed it on? I kind of vaguely remember it being marketed. Um, I definitely did not know it was a remake back in the day. And I was watching almost no horror movies when I was 11 years old. But I did not know too much else about it. Uh, what about you, Brian? Yeah, now that you mentioned the marketing, I guess back in the misty past when I was nine, I do remember seeing some trailers with Catherine Zeta-Jones. But my main thing that I knew about this was the nostalgia critic said it was bad. When I was watching all the nostalgia critic videos in like 2010, 2011 in college, he said this one was goofy and dumb and bad. So that was the reputation that preceded it for me. So you were predisposed to dislike this one. Yeah, that's at least the scuttlebutt I had heard. Really interesting cast. An actress named Lily Taylor plays Eleanor. And I was trying to think if I knew her from anything else. I ended up deciding that I didn't think I did, but I had. She's just a face you've seen before. <laughs> She was she's been in the Conjuring movies recently. I did see High Fidelity and apparently she was in that. Um, she's also in Say Anything, not as a huge role, but I felt like I recognized her. But I, again, I couldn't place exactly. Oh, she's in Rudy. That's what it is. How did I miss this when I was looking at her filmography? So she plays Sean Astin's girlfriend at the beginning of Rudy. OK. Oh, wow. I knew I had seen her face before, but she's the smallest name among the cast. So it's approximately the same structure not exactly the same story though but there's still four people in a haunted house and the other three are played by Catherine zeta jones who plays theodora even less than lee veiled as a lesbian in this one uh they even make like a joke about it at the beginning about how you can't say it sort of and then liam neeson plays the professor and then the fourth guy, not the heir of the house, just some guy named Luke, I guess. I don't know, is Owen Wilson of Wow fame. And he says Wow a lot in this, Brian. You you told me you warned me this was coming. And he does indeed say Wow a lot in The Haunting 1999. Right. I heard it the first time. I was like, yeah, we got it. But it happens like 10 times. He really leans into Wow in this one. It's a Wow heavy <laughs> chapter in the Owen Wilson filmography. Wow. He'll just say that as like a, as he's entering a room. It's like his his way of announcing himself. Oh, wow. Something I learned just reading about this film for this week is it started as a collaboration between Steven Spielberg and Stephen King. Oh, my God. Which is wild. They said, we want to collaborate on a horror movie. You know, almost like an echo of back when it was... Toby Hooper working with Spielberg on Poltergeist. Except this was not an original story. They're like, you put the two masters together. Spielberg's going to work 
with Stephen King and they're going to make something together. And what are they going to do? They're going to do some remake. Okay. But actually, Stephen King dropped out. And he went on and whatever he was going to contribute, he put into a project called Rose Red that came out around this same time, which was another haunted house story. I think Spielberg is like an executive producer. Definitely not prominent in the credits. And he didn't direct it, as you said. It looks like it's a DreamWorks film, too. Yeah, I think that's he's like an executive producer as part of DreamWorks. But that is still a cool origin for it. Yeah, I agree. Spielberg likes to do that, collaborate with people like Zemeckis and Lucas. J.J. Abrams. Exactly. He gets together with his fellow luminaries. He's not. Wait, is he the one who paired on AI with Kubrick? Yeah, I mean, Spielberg's definitely involved with AI. So I didn't know that was Kubrick. Wow. Yeah, I think it was going to be a thing where Kubrick was just going to direct. I don't We can do an episode on AI sometime, but I know that they're both prominent voices in that. Well, Kubrick was dead by 2001, but. Well, I think what happened, I was going to give the story, but I'm not. This is I haven't read it in a long time and I don't want to get it wrong. But my understanding is Kubrick was going to direct it. And it was like a collab, either a collaboration between them or like Spielberg was helping him with it. And then Kubrick died and then Spielberg finished directing it. So it really was both of them directing it in different ways. Okay, that's really interesting. We're both learning from each other today. Hopefully, listeners, you're learning something. Don't hold me to the specifics of that because I read it a while ago, but uh, I definitely need to watch AI at some point. More relevant than ever in the chat GPT era. So a couple other interesting things about The Haunting 1999. It continues the tradition set by the 1963 film of outstanding set design and art direction. Really cool house, although now it's in color instead of black and white. And so you get some more like almost clashing different styles. There's like a carnival room with calliope music and stuff. So this merry-go-round room was wild and it made me wonder if these actually exist in big mansions because there's one in the haunted house level in Super Mario 64. I always assumed it was just made up for that game, but like if you go down into the basement of Boo's Mansion, one of the stars is in the merry-go-round room. And then all of a sudden, Catherine Zeta-Jones goes through a door and she's in the merry-go-round room. So like, are these out there somewhere, Dan? I don't know. I'm not a haunted house expert, Brian. I can't say. There's calliope music in there, and I really like the word calliope. I also like calliope music. I This was actually, I had a list of a few kind of dark horse possible names for our daughters, and calliope was one that I, I had there. I was actually going to say you're going to name your third daughter calliope. You know, I, I like it as a name. I think there's some celebrity who use it as a name. I think Felicia Day might have named her kid calliope. I think that's right. And obviously Callie is the nickname in that case. So a couple of things that make the the remake different from the 60s version. One is that there's a whole story about how the original builder of the house, whose name is Hugh Crane, and he keeps getting muttered. And it sounds just like Ukraine, like the country. And it kept bugging me. I was like, is it are they doing this on purpose? Is it like supposed to be a metaphor about foreign policy or something like that? I don't think so. I think it's just a weird name. Hugh Crane from the Ukraine. And there's this this whole story about him, how he basically used child labor to build his wealth and then 
killed the kids or something in the house. It wasn't, I can't remember exactly what it was, but the, it was the ghost of the kids who he exploited who were in the house. Another wrinkle is there is a study by the doctor, but the doctor isn't explicitly looking for the supernatural. He's looking at the mechanics of fear. So he's bringing people who have sleep disorders because they'll be more susceptible to be scared in a big old haunted house, which made less sense to me. I didn't quite understand this one quite as much as I did the original. Also, he lied to the subject he's recruiting, which didn't happen in the first one. So I wondered about that. Like, can you even do that? And maybe in some cases they do. I mean, you got MK Ultra and all that stuff that the CIA does. But I think it's best scientific practices not to lie to your voluntary test subjects. Right. That double blind study or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For what it's worth, like the first 20 minutes of this movie are almost identical to the 1960 film. Like the dialogue is almost all the same. The, the Just the beats. Very, very similar. Yeah, I agree. The setup is is a lot more similar. It kind of explicitly focuses on a couple other things that were just kind of asides in the original, like the nature of who owns the house that she wants to stay at, like not the, the Hill house, but the one that her mother left to the kids and stuff. But yeah, and I think the opening is probably the best part. One thing that bugged me, and I'm sure that it bugged you, Brian, is when we start getting the ghost stuff, it's crappy 1999 CGI of like Cupid statues coming to life and stuff. Which is what I was ready for. I mean, the nostalgia critic was really harping on that. But I don't know. It didn't piss me off as much as I was ready for it to. And maybe that's just because I was ready for it. It's like par for the course in 99. What is majorly different, though, and that's part of it, is that the ghosts are manifesting all over the place. They're just doing a lot of physical stuff more so than they were in the old one. The big one is I'm about to spoil the 1999 haunting. And I was shocked that this was happening as it happened, but characters start dying and it begins with, I guess he's the only one who does end up dying, but Owen Wilson gets decapitated by this big swinging. I don't even know what it is like a, a, chimney flue or something like that swings down and just knocks his head off this was pretty wild brian (laughs) he said wow one too many times the house was like shut up shut up shut up (laughs) lost his wow maker (laughs) so yeah that's the 1999 one the only thing i felt positively towards well let me take it back a couple things i felt positively towards it is like i like the cast but i felt like it wasn't their best work. Like Catherine Zeta-Jones, yeah, she's incredibly beautiful and electric on screen, but she was kind of checked out, just kind of smirking and hamming a little bit. Uh, I did think Lily Taylor's performance was pretty good, but Liam Neeson also, he was just on autopilot, it felt like. Not not a bad performance, but not particularly interesting for me. But it's really the set design that kind of kept me afloat on this one. That's what made it work for me, too, is this is, again, a really impressive house that they picked. Just everything looks interesting. I didn't care when they started revealing the lore of the specific ghost and they get like the final boss fight at the end. Oh, yeah, that was kind of dumb, too. Yeah, I didn't quite get that. And I think the weakest thing for me is you don't have as strong a connection, at least I didn't, to Eleanor as a character. And part of that is there's less of the 
her trying to romance Liam Neeson didn't really happen the same way. So just not quite as going in deep on her, like, needing an identity. It's definitely there, but I thought it was strung together point A to B to C in the 1963 one, and so it really felt like the logical ending was for her to become one with the house. Yeah, I agree. Her character just didn't click quite as much, and it really felt like we were being forced into a more typical horror movie formula where the characters kind of fall one by one at the end. And there's a sort of final ghost they need to defeat, like you said. And there's a whole thing where they're like physically locked into the estate and they can't get out, which. So they're like barging down doors and stuff that is a little out of spirit to the way that the 60s one felt busting through windows and stuff. You know, there wasn't really much of that in the, the 60s one. So that's the remake. Is there anything else you want to shout out, Brian? Or are you about ready to, to rate these two entries in the Hauntiverse uh, that we have discussed today? I'm pretty much ready. I would say that if you're interested in checking out the miniseries on Netflix, go ahead and do so. It had some scary stuff. It's not really the same story, though. It's It's like not the same thing. Don't feel like you have to check it out to be a completionist. The key connections are it has that spiral staircase. Okay. Yeah, great spiral staircase. And that made it in the remake too. Honestly, one of the better spiral staircases I can think of. Can you think of any other memorable spiral staircases, Brian? The one in Titanic with the Cupid clock where Leo says, meet me at the clock. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's a good spiral staircase. Not as tight a spiral, so less immediately obvious that it is one. The Lighthouse, doesn't that have a spiral staircase? Oh, you know what? It does. I love The Lighthouse. Just saw that one recently. I'm sure I shouted it out a week or two ago. But let's go ahead and rate these movies, Brian. So is it good as our signature section where we each give the movie a rating on our eight-point goodness scale, ranging from very not good, which is a one out of eight, to our masterpiece rating, toward a good, which is an eight out of eight? So, Brian, I will ask you, we'll do the 61 first. Is The Haunting from 1963 good? I'm going to give this one a 5 out of 8, which is good. And towards the higher end of that, I thought it really does a good job capturing a feeling. The best moment for me was the lingering on the face in the wallpaper. I thought that was the best encapsulation of the spirit that they were evoking. And just the sense that it's taking over Eleanor's life and consuming, subsuming her because she's so in need of an identity. The The whole presentation works pretty well, uh, even if it is a little bit of a bummer. What are your thoughts, Dan? You probably have gathered as I've been talking through this, but I was really, really vibing with this. I thought it was just so expertly filmed and constructed and just really interesting from a kind of premise perspective and characters actually kind of clicked for me in, in really interesting ways. Like you were talking about with Eleanor, but even all the other characters kind of brought some angle to this look at the notion of a house being haunted. Well paced. I kind of said it has kind of a long middle act where things just happen, but it still never felt like a, a tedious slog, like movies that sometimes feel like they're all second act sometimes do terrific sets and the way that the sets are filmed in particular lovely 
I'm going to give this one a seven, kind of a mid-level seven. And that is, we call that exceptionally good, our seven out of eight. This kind of goes up there in, in the ranks of horror movies that have just really worked for me and just feel like they're just made basically the best possible version of themselves. And honestly, it makes me more interested in, in haunted house stories than I thought I was. I mean, I, I really loved House from 1977, like we talked about. So maybe I do like haunted house stories. I don't know. But I was kind of expecting it to be a little stodgier as a classic 60s horror haunted house film than it ended up being. I just thought I thought it was really effective for what was fairly minimal and in effects and um, just really loved it. So that's I'm going to give this one a seven. Now let's move on to the 90s one, Brian, 1999, The Haunting. What would you give this one? So this one, I wouldn't say rush out and watch it. I'm going to give it a three out of eight. What do we call that one? It's been a while since I've given it. Is that a not not good? Correct. Yeah. And I think all the set design is really cool. And I came in ready to trash this one. And I don't really want to trash it. Like, the CGI is bad, but it's of the era. It is weird that it's such a departure that the ghosts are much more physical, but I think that's to be expected of the era also. Like, it needs to be more action-y. You got these big stars, and it's like a symptom of the system. I don't really recommend it. I didn't end up hating it. I was glad that I went ahead and watched it, but I will probably not watch it again, at least for quite a while. Where are you at, Dan? I'm not too far off from you, Brian. I really struggled with what to rate this because it kind of starts out fairly similar. It just didn't have quite as much atmosphere. And then little by little, there would be something that's just a little off for me. Oh, the effects takes you out of it from what compared to the original, which was like really good about minimal effect. And oh, the characters are less interesting. And oh, the performances aren't quite there. I did like the set design from start to finish. And I don't know, sometimes when I like really react to something and then really don't react to something else or like react negatively, I guess, to something else that is, you know, fairly similar in construction, I sometimes wonder if I'm being too hard or generous on one or the other because I'm just like comparing this versus that, you know? Great point. It's like the Pepsi taste test. So I I was feeling actually fairly cynical about this, I got to say. Um, I'm just going to kind of ride that and go ahead and give this uh, two, a two, a not good. Verging into a three, just because I really like the set design, kind of right on the line. So I'm not too far away from you, but I just ended up feeling a little more coldly towards it just because of how much I liked the first one, I guess, which is not really fair. But if you're going to go ahead and remake a great horror film, you got to have a reason to do it beyond just dollar bills and new stars and stuff. And it, oh, another thing, this is a minor point, but I'm becoming more and more annoyed with this thing that happens a lot, which is that there's a movie based off of a book or a play or something like that, that becomes well-regarded. And then later there's a remake, but that the makers of the remake say, oh no, we're not basing it off of the famous movie. We're basing it off of the source book or the source play. So it's not really a remake. It's just inspired by the same one. But OK, maybe that's true. But like 
you obviously have seen the famous one and like that will be influencing what you do. And quite honestly, it's, it is going to be a remake in some ways. Like you're going to be processing it through the lens of wait, there's already a famous movie that has this thing. Like, can you imagine someone being like, Oh, I'm going to make a movie based off of Mario Puzo's the Godfather, but it won't be a remake and won't be based on the movie. It'll be just based on the book. Okay, but like, obviously, whatever you're making is in discourse with the famous thing that was made. You can't watch a movie and be like, oh, this happens to be based off the same book that The Godfather was based off of. Like, it's just not impossible. You can't separate the two. So I don't know. Maybe that's the curse of like watching movies and their remakes at the same time or something like that. But that's something that I was thinking a little bit about as I was watching this this remake which claims to just be based off the same book, not a remake of the 60s movie. And that at least stands up to scrutiny in the fact that it's pretty different. I, I feel like you can't say it's quote unquote not a remake. But. Right. It feels really unnecessary. Yeah. It does make me a little bit nostalgic for the 90s look of blockbusters when you hadn't quite gone into the full digital effects area. And so it still felt a little bit more practical, you know? I was thinking about how this was the same year that Liam Neeson was in Phantom Menace. A brutal year for him to be checked out on mediocre franchise (laughs) blockbusters. Uh, And my rating gets a bonus point for kicking Owen Wilson's head off like a soccer ball. Great point. Uh, You know what? I'm almost regretting my two. that, That actually was pretty funny to me. I don't think it was meant to be funny, but having Owen Wilson decapitated does brought me some amusement. Sorry, Owen Wilson. I actually do like you a lot. I think you're a good actor. I like Owen Wilson, too. We talked about it in our Wes Anderson coverage. That's right. Yeah. All right, Brian, what are we going to be watching next week in our as we approach the middle? In fact, I guess we're over the hump of the middle of spooky season. Yeah, we've got maybe two more solid eps in October proper. So this may be my last one of the month, and it's a little nebulous still, but it's a concept episode, Dan. And what I would like us to do is to play some spooky VHS board games. And I'm still figuring out over the next couple of days how this is going to work, whether we record ourselves playing it or we just play it and then talk about our experience. But uh, at least one of the featured offerings is going to be the rescue of Pops Ghostly for the Action Max VHS game system. It doesn't have a letterbox entry. Oh, I can't log it. That's a bummer. I'm going to see what else we can put together. Some of these, they're expensive to get them off eBay and still have enough of the pieces to even be able to play. So you have one, though. I've got one. Yes. Okay. cool. This will be fun. Maybe I can come over to your place. I don't think I have a VCR, so it'd have to be at your place. Yeah, sounds good. All right. Wow, that's going to be a wrinkle, Brian. I have that to listen to. And look forward to listeners as spooky season coverage continues. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, listeners. And I'll talk to you next week. Yeah. Thanks for tuning in. Bye. Bye.